The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this evening, may all beings everywhere benefit. May they be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May they be happy and possess the causes for happiness. May they be content and live in harmony. May they be free of the suffering caused by injustice, discrimination, genocide, and war. May all beings everywhere be reconciled. By the power and the truth of our efforts this evening, may all beings everywhere be content. This is our prayer. This is our intention. Three people were given a powerful gift by a luminous, kind-hearted spirit. The gift is that for just one hour, they get to experience miracles and wonders. This limited time is filled with visual delights, food of the utmost deliciousness, amazing people with incredible talents, and love. The first person is a great man, and while he's grateful for the gift, he has lots to do and so regrettably has to spend a lot of it replying to emails and texts and checking for updates in social media. He does take some pictures of the delicious food and shares it on social media, though he doesn't pay attention to the taste. The second person is a bit of procrastinator. Okay, let's be honest, a big procrastinator. And while she really wants to use this gift wisely, she keeps putting it off. She spends much of the hour watching videos the first guy posts online of this miraculous world, but she doesn't go out and experience it for herself. The third person is blown away by this gift. What an incredible opportunity. She realizes she needs to make the most of it, but isn't sure how. So she starts by paying attention. She notices every little detail. She listens to the amazing people she meets and tries to really see them for who they are. She tastes the food and pays close attention to every sensation as she eats, savoring the food slowly. She then practices gratitude for every moment and every person, everything she's given. She's filled with happiness by every little thing in this hour. Finally, she changes people's lives. She uses what is left of this dwindling hour to learn skills, to heal people who are struggling, including the first guy, 
to make things to delight the other amazing people in this world. She becomes the gift for others. The hour is over, and the first two people realize they've wasted the gift and will never get an opportunity to experience it ever again. They're filled with regret. The third person has no regrets, because she paid attention, was grateful, and used the gift to benefit other lives. She used the gift to its fullest potential. Which of those three people are you? This is the ongoing purpose of full attention, to find a thousand ways to be pierced into wholeness. A most profound and helpful learning came to me when struggling with the pain of having a rib removed. For weeks, I felt a corset of pain girdling each breath. But watching the winter water of a stream began to thaw and flow over and over, I finally saw that to make it through the pain, I had to be more like water and less like ice. For when trees fell into the ice, the river shattered. But when large limbs fell into the flowing water, the river embraced the weight and flowed around it. The trees and winter water were teaching me that the pain was more pointed and hurtful when I was tense and solid as ice. Then each breath was shattering. But when I could thaw the fear and tenseness I carried, the pain was more absorbed and I could, like the thawing stream, move on, not pain-free, but no longer shattered. It is this way with much of nature. By opening fully to our own experience, giving it our fullest attention, we can feel and see the resilience of life in all things, all beings around us, including ourselves. Feeling our woundedness, our disappointment, our fear, our worriment, we can learn from the hollowed stump how to root smaller greens. Feeling our sadness, we can learn from the leaves too tired to be blown along how to surrender. Feeling our tenderness, we can learn from the caterpillar how to endure the tremble that precedes the appearance of wings. But it is only by showing up by denying nothing, not a single part of ourselves, especially our attention, that other living things will reveal to us the secrets of how they manage to live. In deep counterpoint to the old saying, an eye for an eye, there is a deeper law that guides us to wholeness and truth of being for a truth of being. So the purpose of full attention is to invite through personal surrender the particular example of life force in whatever is around us to show itself. 
a truth of being for a truth of being. Yes, when in pain, be like flowing water. When suffering near the bottom, feed off what you can, like the brilliant ocean fish, and spit back the rest. When feeling burdened, watch small birds to see how they begin to fly. When feeling finished, watch newborn animals open their wet little eyes and imitate their innocence. Once giving full attention, you will come back, one drop at a time, into the tide of living. Hello. 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 We all just go to sleep then. So I'm very happy to be with you tonight. Been looking forward to this evening because I get to again to talk about what is dear to my heart. And I get to be with each of you who are also dear to my heart. So last month, I began, or if you will, launched what I intend to be a series of talks on what I consider to be the single most important matter in any individual's life. And if one chooses, as I will assume everyone in this room has done so, to approach their life from a more spiritual, if you will, ground of being, and the single most important thing we need to talk about and get down to the business of working on is what I identified last month as the principle of identity. The principle of identity defines for us and lays down the potential or possibility for wholeness and well-being. It defines for us what life really is about. And I will assume again that that's why we are here. We are here this evening because of life, our individual life, and the questions we have about life. And so often in the West, as the Japanese often say, we are obsessed with right answers when it is more important to have the right question. Because it is the question like intention, which we are going to talk about at great length tonight. It is the question, like intention, that literally defines not only the answer, but the potential or the possibility of the answer. That is to say, just as my point of view, which involves my intention for living life, literally defines for me not only what I will experience, from moment to moment, but more than that, what I am permitted to experience. So Buddhists talk a lot because the fundamental teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha in the Four Noble Truths, including the Eightfold Noble Path, which we will say or identify tonight as his prescription for navigating through life skillfully, for navigating through a Dharma or phenomenal world with myriad of forms and a world defined by impermanence, that is to say, it is constantly changing. To navigate through that skillfully with wisdom, his first of the eight-part prescription involves right intention. 
or right point of view or having the right question, having the right attitude, all of the components that literally, whether you are aware of it or not, defines for you and me the future, my future and the future of the world. So last month, I quite energetically suggested to you, if you were here, you will remember. If you're not, you'll hear more of it tonight. I quite energetically suggested to you that we need to get down to the serious business of what's it, what it's all about. Why we are here, what is the meaning of our lives, and that question itself, due to, again, the mediocre attempts of the media, if you will, modern day spiritual but not religious movement to make it more attractive. That question is not as complicated as it often seems to be for people. The meaning of life is universal because each of us, whether we realize it or not, and we need to realize it in order to embark on this journey called life, whether we realize it or not, are a part of the same components everything else is in the universe. We are a part of nature. We share its rhythm, rhythms within us. We are seasonal just as it is. We do not exist as much as our human arrogance often tends to delude us to believe apart from those rhythms and apart from those seasons. In fact, we do not exist apart from any part of the rest of the universe. So as the Buddha realized 2,500 years ago that if he was ever going to resolve the questions he had for his life, they would be resolved synonymously with understanding what this we call life really was, what makes it up, and what on the other side or the flip side of that, the same coin, but on the other side, why is it that so many of us struggle with it. When we look at it clear-eyed and directly, we can see it is designed for a singular purpose, to work. It is designed to work. And what we often never learn, most people at least, or never want to hear or never want to learn is what Zen identifies as the cause of all suffering. Whether it is stress, anxiety, uh, low self-esteem, a lack of confidence, fear, worryment, the economy, the cause of all suffering is ego delusion. And by that we mean that our point of view or our thoughts or our definitions about this we call life and what it's about are way out of touch with reality. And that is why so many times the truth appears to be or is experienced regularly by so many as inconvenient. Because so many of us are trying to find the truth that will fit our reality. When in fact, our reality is so much un able to or not conducive for the truth. And that is in itself what, again, Zen Buddhists call ego delusion. That is to say, we need to come up with 
a more accurate definition for ourselves and for the world in general if we are ever going to be that missing link engaging in the responsibility we have as human beings because we possess the power no other form of life possesses. And that is, we can change it all in a moment and we can destroy it all in a moment. We possess that power. And with that comes great responsibility. And because we possess that responsibility, it is imperative that we recognize the urgency of what, again, Buddhists call waking up. Waking up. And this is a more accurate interpretation of, again, a more media-presented word uh, called enlightenment. So, tonight is about not being distracted. Why is that so important? And how does that, again, fit in to the discussion of the principle of identity? And, it, and a few moments ago, I began to give you some clues. Whenever we are operating from a false, unrealistic, if you will, paradigm for living, this is a form of distraction. And when we are being distracted by that paradigm, by that intention, or what, again, the Eightfold Noble Path might refer to as wrong intention, that is to say, the things that I invest myself into, the energy that I put into this or that, the goals and objectives that I, you know, pursue in life, if you will. What is my intention about that? And, again, from the Buddhist teachings, we find a most profound, exclusive, and singular warning. If that intention is not right, we do more to harm ourselves and others than if we would never pursue any of those goals and objectives at all. So not only is intention powerful, intention is everything. And intention is the heart of the principle of identity, or more accurately, the principle of identity is the heart of intention. And intention is the means by which I get to be in the world. I get to express myself at what I call the level of full self-expression. I get to be a powerful force of nature. You get to be a powerful force of nature because that's what you really are. That's what you were born as and were born to be in the world. Rather than, again, my favorite quote that you've heard me say if you've been around long enough, 10,000 times. A fever, selfish, little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that life is not making me happy, in a sense. And we have so many of them, okay? We, we, we really don't need to repopulate the world with that, okay? What we really need to do is to, a quote I came across the other day about parenting really, really touched me, and I'm paraphrasing it, and, it, and it's, and it has to do with what we're talking about right now. So I'll share it with you. And it said, our job as parents is not to strengthen our children's backbones so that they can take on the hard, cruel world, but to cultivate the ground and nurture them 
to change that hard, cruel world, to transform it, and to make it more into the image, if you will, of love and compassion and kindness and relationship and so forth. So when I started a few moments ago, I offered to you a fundamental truth, and that is something we touched upon at greater length last month, and that is you and I are related. We are not only related with each other, but we are related with every other Marriott of form that is an expression of this one singular Dharma, as we Buddhists refer to it. We are interconnected with all the many forms, with all the many beings. And on the, on the path, if you will, of, if you will, creating right intention for ourselves, we need to begin there. So that is why no matter what the service is, no matter what the ceremony is, no matter what the ritual is, as you witness tonight, if this is your first time, and those of you who have been here regularly and out at Pine Wind have witnessed every single time, we begin with the same, if you will, prayer. We begin with the same Dharani. By the power and the truth of my thoughts, by the power and the truth of my words, by the power and the truth of my actions or my efforts, May all beings benefit. May all beings be freed by that. May all beings be liberated from suffering and the causes of suffering. And those, those opening words of that Dharani gets right to the point, speaks right to the issue of right intention. From the Buddha's teachings, we find right intention to be singular and exclusive. And again, when we are distracted by negative emotions, worrisome, fearsome emotions, low self-esteem, self-doubt, stress and anxiety, this is the miracle of an instrument we all have that Buddhists say is always telling us the truth, and that is our body. Our body doesn't lie. It's an instrument of communication. So when we are feeling those emotions, such as the ones I just described within us, it is telling us we're off intention. We're not living our truth. We're not present to what is really so. And this is what we mean by ego delusion. When ego takes us off into a direction, whatever that may be, and we find ourselves struggling and suffering while on that journey or on that path. It is, if you will, what therapists call that inner voice, what one might call God or spirit, what one might call one's Buddha nature or the universe saying to us, you're off track, you're off mark, you're off purpose, you're down the road of wrong intention." And the practice in our training as Zen Buddhists, with the practice of what often is referred to in society these days as mindfulness, and which is the practice of bringing our full attention, which Mark Nepo talks about in a profound way in the reading I just shared with you, bringing our full attention to that experience and listening to it and responding to it. So mindfulness, as we practice and train in it at the monastery, as so many others are attempting to discover and learn about it for themselves, 
mindfulness is a powerful tool and an imperative tool, a necessary tool, an essential tool. Most of us can begin to do what we need to do, which is change the way we live our life by learning to listen, by learning to listen and not take for granted. And taking for granted is one of the three poisons the Buddha identified in his lifetime. He said the three poisons of life, these behaviors literally poison our life. The third he identified was folly or taking for granted the moment and what's going on. So most of us when we feel negative or we feel stressed or we feel depressed or we feel tired, we take that for granted until it gets real extreme and then we run off to the doctor and what the doctor will do for us, and I have a lot of respect for doctors, one of my best friends is one, but what doctor will do for us is prescribe a medicine and as necessary as that may be in your life at the moment, what it also does is that it distracts you from that experience. It either calms you down, makes you feel better, and so forth. But again, for a Buddhist, it is necessary to not be distracted, but to listen to that experience. It is a message. It is a message from what we call your true self, because it is that conditioned self that Buddhists talk about, which we work to liberate ourselves from its conditioning. It is that conditioned self that is creating this kind of ego delusion at the moment. And it's telling us something most of us don't want to hear, because we all like to think, you know, we are living the life. That's the big goal in this country, to live the life, the American dream. Well, we have found out not to, I guess within the last two decades, American dream is more accurately defined as a nightmare, you see. And we weren't born to live the American dream. We weren't born to live any dream. We were born, we were created, the entire universe was created and designed to live in a real, if you will, consciousness, a real, if you will, domain, the real stuff, and designed to not only live in it, but to live it and to live it effectively, or more accurately, the Buddhist term he preferred using skillfully, with skillfulness, with a real courage, even in the times that we are most fearful. In fact, no courage is possible otherwise. Most, if, you want to learn, if you want more courage in your life, you need to embrace the stuff you're mostly fearful of. You need to experience the fear and in experiencing the fear, you need to apply skillfulness. And the skillfulness, in a short version, is what I often refer to as Nike Buddhism. Scared to death, just do it. Scared to death, meet it on, and do what you need to do. And find out how powerful you really are. But all of this is like what most of all of this is. When you read about it in self-help books, and go to seminars about it and workshops, and if you're just hearing my words tonight. All of this is powerless, has no value, has no worth whatsoever, unless we are prepared to stop, listen, look, and do the work of making the changes, whereby our lifestyle is in harmony with the singular intention of all life. And Nepo talks about that in his wonderful 
you know, writing tonight. A man who experienced horrific cancer at one time in his life, where several ribs had to be removed from him. And he writes about it in other parts of his book, The Agony of the Chemotherapy. And if you have been there or you know someone who has been there, you know how it's like hell. It's like being in hell. Whether it was cancer or a heart attack or any other disease, when you come face to face with that kind of pain. And he talks about how, again, life is designed to get through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is designed to be alive and to be fully alive, even in the worst times. And what most of us are seeking is exactly what Joseph Campbell, the father, the mystical father of myth, you know, mythism, and he spent his entire life teaching it in university. He was famous in the 80s on WHYY and other public stations, you know, Campbell's mythology and the whole bit. And he gets to the end of his life, and he writes in a memoir that after spending his entire life convinced that what the world needed, what people needed, were stories about life, were the myths about life, he says, I realize now that that's not what people really need and not what people really want. What people really need and what people really want is the experience of being alive, the experience itself. And even though the myth is intended, if you will, I mean, his work was wondrous. I mean, I followed him just like so many other and admired the man and the way he taught and everything else. The myth is so important, but its power, just like anything else in the spiritual practices, its power relies exclusively upon taking the lesson it has to offer us and using it to make the changes in my attitude, my approach, my way of living, and so forth, to benefit the world. Because as all of those myths uh, you know, taught us when, when he was around, and as all of the many spiritual teachings teach us, that our lives have a singular purpose and a singular meaning. And it's what I often tell my students next year, if I'm still around 40 years, to live your life as a benefit for others. Not only is that the purpose and meaning of life, but that is the secret to happiness. That is the only secret you need to know. That is the only path. As I often say, when I am loving others, that's when I'm absolutely convinced that I am loved. Any other time when I'm trying to get love, too much suffering, too much suffering. So let's go back to the first story where I ended it by asking you, which of the three people are you? I don't need to know that. You need to know that. You need to know that. But for the sake of using the story again as a skillful tool for awakening and making changes both in my life and in the world, let's take a look at the third person the star of the story, if you will, and take a look at what her role says to us about, about living alive and well and full and how she discovered it. And 
like all stories, so often, stories like this, when we hear them, we hear them as if they were never told before. But the truth of the matter is they all are universal. And they all say the same thing. And if that's true, and it is, because I've spent my lifetime researching and inquiring into every one of them, whether it be theist teachings in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, the Sufis, whether it be Buddhist wisdom teachings and other schools of the wisdom traditions, they are all saying the same thing. First, she starts by giving her full attention. And we have to start there. When you come to the monastery, and you need to come to the monastery. If you don't come to the monastery, shame on you. You gotta come to the monastery. So when you come to the monastery to study, like, you know, this is entertainment tonight, okay? Or maybe not, <laughs> if you will. But nonetheless, when you come to the monastery to really train, one of the first things you hear me say to you, and I've been saying this again for 40 years, is there's no magic here. There's no magic here, and I am not a magician. And you will get out of this in exact proportion to what you bring to it to what you put into it. So it's entirely up to you. And in order for you to really run with that ball, you need to give it your full attention. If you are not prepared to give it your full attention, just like if you're not prepared to fully commit to meditation, not prepared to fully commit to a life of prayer, if you're not prepared to fully commit to a relationship which requires your attention, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it, okay? So that is why in Zen, students learn, among many other forms of practice, the practice of saying yes when you mean yes, and never say yes when you mean no, and saying no when you mean no, and never say yes when you mean no, and so forth, to say exactly what you mean. So to give my full attention is the yes. and. When you study the Torah, and when you study the, if you will, the creation stories and all the rest, when you read about Abraham, and you read about the prophets, and you read about Jesus, and you read about uh, Muhammad, and all of them, God required one thing from them. And if they were not willing to give it, they were out. And what was that? Their yes. Their yes. And, as we say in Buddhism, the spirit cares only about flying. As to who does the flying, it has a passing interest. Okay? Likewise, commitment is that powerful. So again, with their yes, the world was changed. Not just their little piece of it, but what these characters did thousands of years ago is still affecting the world today and literally, literally created the world we have today, okay? The real world, not the one we're manufacturing and have been manufacturing, if you will, since the end of World War II, the one of profit and loss, but the world of unlimited potential and creation, the world of at least an inquiry into the most important stuff, such as love and relationship and forgiveness and compassion. I read an article in Huffington Post the other day that this new generation coming up, as, as dismal we may think, 
of it, or as you know, hopeless we may think of it, really might prove to be the, you know, the next thing in evolution. Because they're more tolerant, more accepting, less discriminating. The issues that you know, we and generations before us thought mattered about relationships doesn't matter to them, what color you are, what religion you are, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, and so forth. All of that began with that yes back then and continues with that yes. So my yes is everything, everything. It is also a statement of my love for myself because the yes I am talking about is the yes that challenges us to grow, challenges us to realize our fullest potential rather than living a life that's about just securing this little space I call my life, per se. Challenges us to enter into a sphere of wonder and miracles that those words used by the Buddha on the day of his awakening, of his own enlightenment, when he said, wonder of wonders, miracles of miracles, he described that world which is the real world, not the world of constantly struggling to just survive, but the world of creation, the world of risk, the world of being full of fear and still mustering up, not finding, because you can't find it. When you're fearful, I've been there, I know it. When you're fearful, you can't find courage. It's not there. All that's there is fear. Courage is what you muster up, what you cause to happen by your yes, by your yes, you see. So we need to stop favoring no. We need to stop favoring it as, you know, something that gets us something. All no gets us is the sofa. It's all it gets us. And the sofa is nice, but I don't know about you, it eventually, the pillows eventually take the shape of the butt and then it gets unnice. Then you gotta go out and buy another one and now you're back in the same place you were, in debt again, you're saying. So our yes is everything. And our yes is directly connected to what, again, Buddhists call right intention. And the power of intention, as, as Wayne Dreyer made millions of dollars talking about, is very real. My intention like the principle of identity. Again, if you've been listening, intention is that component that expresses and makes real, that you know, actualizes, again, intention in the world for me. So actualizes reality and actualizes form for me in the world. And the right intention, from the Buddhist point of view, is yes, I will live my life as a benefit to all life in its myriad of forms. The Bodhisattva uh, vow, if you will, as I have interpreted in my own words, goes something like this, if you will. I wrote it down before I walked in here and I forgot. Where is it? Here we go. May my thoughts, my words, and my actions benefit others. May the benefit my thoughts, words, and actions create return to benefit me so that I, in turn, may continue to benefit others. 
Do you know what that also is? Anyone know what that also is? It's going to shock you. Well, yeah, it, it, it's that. But let's step outside of the, let's step outside of that and step over into the dark side, if you will. You know what that also is? The formula for capitalism. It's the formula for an economy that works. You see, the economy that's stuck is one where people are holding on to their gifts rather than sharing them, going to the restaurant, going here and going there, which puts people back to work, which creates a demand for the product, which puts people back to work. It's a secular paradigm, and that's what this is. When I live my life as a benefit for others, that benefit returns. Again, this is a universal teaching. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you wasn't just a nice idea. It was a wise idea. Because when we treat others with respect and with compassion, you know, with love and all of the things we want ourselves, another guy said it will return to you tenfold. Karma teaches that if you're not doing that, Whatever else you're doing will return to you tenfold, you see? Life is secular. It comes full circle, okay? And we're not to hear that as some kind of threat, that if you're bad, this is what's going to happen, because that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when it comes full circle back to you, where do you think it is actually happening? Within you. It's not that I'm putting it out into the world and the world in its gratefulness is saying, well, hey, he's a great guy. He's been spending 40 years of his life. Trust me, it isn't saying that. He's been spending 40 years of his life helping people. Let's give him something. Let's pay his bills for him. No, it's not saying that. I'm saying there's something more deeper and more profound. Again, as Mark Nepo says in his writings, the gift is something more deeper and more profound. It is something that happens within you. That despite the circumstances and situations, the content of my life out here or your life out here, there's a transformation that takes place within you, an experience of the whole you, which, again, that little you that we are, all of us, myself included, that ego delusion that we get trapped in occasionally, or maybe more than occasionally, that is complaining that life is not making me happy, there's much more of you than that. And the only way you get to know that, the only way you get to experience that, is with your yes. But your yes needs to be the right yes. So when we go back to all of the characters in history that I refer to, and the many more that I don't have the time to name, who gave their yes, you see what I'm talking about. Even when they were betrayed and murdered for that, even when they lost everything for that, something within them was much more powerful, wealthier than ever. And again, it's like the term wealth itself. It depends on what you define as wealth. You know what I'm saying? And money is not wealth. 
money is a means towards it if you use it with right intention. And that's why most people have a problem with money in their lives, because they think money's wealth. No, it isn't. It wasn't designed for it. And those aren't my words. They aren't even the words of a monk or a spiritual person. They're the words of some of the wealthiest, if you will, financially wealthiest men and women I've met. They all have said the same thing to me over the years when I've interviewed them and talked to them and asked them what the secret was. And they all said the first thing is that most people don't understand what money is. Okay? So their intention is more money. That's not how they made their money. That's not how they made their money. They didn't make their money by going for the money. They made their money by, many of them, if you will, living their passion. And the money followed, you see. So when I live my life as a benefit for others, when I'm truly willing to offer my yes with absolute, and, and that's another thing when you talk to most of these guys, with the exception of very few, and you know who they are, you can identify them immediately. You might even think of their names when I say this. With the exception of the few that just are there for the money and what have you, again, when you talk to these guys, again, they started out believing that what they had to offer was going to benefit the world, was going to benefit somebody else, and the money followed from that. So whether I'm in a personal relationship with you or not, if you will, or whether we're talking about you know, some enterprise or some other issue, again, giving it my full attention, giving it my yes is the first imperative step. Second, giving it again with the intention to benefit others, to benefit others. She notices every little detail. Again, we're talking about that third person who took full advantage, who gave her full yes to the gift. She notices every little detail. Another word for that is responsibility. She chose to be responsible for her yes, to be responsible for her choice. So she didn't leave any detail of her life up to anyone else. She didn't take for granted that she alone was responsible for her life and her experience. And that's what this means. When we, it, when we practice tea in, in Zen, the ceremony, if you will, or the way of tea, the singular most, um, if you will, emphatic teaching has to do with giving your attention to details. And it, the teaching goes that if you pay attention to the details, everything else works out for themselves. So to pay attention to the details of my life involves a willingness on my part again, which is what Dogen, the Zen master who set up the Soto schools of Zen in Japan thousands of years ago said is, the, is, is Zen training or Zen practice. He said Zen is the study of the self. It has to do with really taking a look at myself, my life, and how I live it, and asking the right questions. Is this choice, is this thought, or way of thinking, attitude, point of view, action, whatever metaphor works for you, is this beneficial to me and others? If it's no on either side, it's what we call wrong action, 
or wrong intention. And it might appear initially to be something we want to do, but in the long run will only cause suffering. So suffering is suffering whether you get it in the beginning or the end. <laughs> and it's stupid to think of it otherwise, if you will. She listens to the amazing people she meets and tries to really see them for who they are. And this speaks to, again, the third component. The third component and essential component. She doesn't act apart from or independent of or as if her life is separate from the rest. But she acts relational. Life is relational. Anybody want to argue that with me? Life is relational. Everything exists in relation to everything else. Where did we ever get the idea that living our life as if we exist separate from the rest? I remember Ronald Reagan. That was right. Started in the 80s. <laughs> life is relational. They're killing each other in, the, in, the, uh, in Colorado and Nevada and Montana and Utah for water because they don't want to pay the fees okay, necessary to keep it running. Their forefathers knew that sharing the water and working together to keep the water flowing benefited all, all the ranchers and all the farmers. They understood that. So something obviously changed between then and now. Because the Republican Party changed. <laughs> They're not the same ones they were back then. She tastes the food and pays close attention to every sensation as she eats. This is the word that we talked about last month. Savoring the food slowly. And the food, the word food and all of this is metaphors for life. Savoring life, taking time to really savor each moment of life. To not just be getting somewhere or getting back from somewhere, you see? And one of the examples I think it was last month I used was my experience of um, being a single parent, taking my daughter to dance class this morning, for example, or on those occasions when she's wanted to stop and watch a soccer game at her favorite park. I watched the parents rush in with their SUVs and get their kids to the soccer game or the dance class and almost immediately after they're on the field or they're in the dance room dancing <laughs> and this is what they do the whole time. The only time they stop is when in dance class, the only time, mommy I gotta go to the potty and the dance teacher and says you gotta take your kid to the potty, I don't stop and take them. Okay. But otherwise, missing the whole thing. Missing the whole thing. Missing the whole thing. See? That's one example of how many millions of examples we can bring up tonight where we don't savor the moment. We're constantly moving towards tomorrow. And the problem with that, as you have often heard me say, is it doesn't exist. We're moving towards some place that doesn't exist. Maybe that's why we're never satisfied, because we never get there. We never get to tomorrow. 
Most of us never get there because it's cut short because while we're doing this, we hit another car and we die or we kill somebody, if you will. Distraction may feel well for the moment, but in the long run creates a habitual mental attitude that robs us of life, no matter what form it takes. Savoring each moment, even the moments, and here again we go back to Mark Nepo's teachings, powerful stuff, even the moments we would rather not taste, the flavors that we would rather not taste, the aromas we would rather not smell. I love how he you know, explains it at the end. When in pain, be like the flowing water. When suffering near the bottom, he doesn't say, you know, fight to get up from the bottom or, or work to get away from it. He says, feed off what you can, like the brilliant ocean fish, and spit back the rest. And one of the, one of the experiences in my own personal life about this had to do with actually sitting in the parking lot of an Acme shopping center one day and watching those fat little birds that are always in those parking lots. And I really gave them my full attention because I wanted to see where the food was. <laughs> you see? But again, obviously, there's got to be food because they're fat little birds. You see? All of nature knows that even at the bottom, you can find life if you are willing to give it your attention, you see. But we live in a culture where, for example, the last month we talked about, you know, this whole need for closure. And if there's a lesson that I've learned in the past three or four years that has literally changed the course of my life, it's this. There are some things in life you will never get closure on. Never. And we are a culture obsessed with the idea that we can get closure. We can rise up. Years ago, for about 25 years before he died, I was legal guardian of a mentally handicapped gentleman. And one of the things I like to think I contributed to his life before he died was him feeling that if he called me dad, even though he was older than me, he always called me dad, him feeling that if dad died, he knew where to go get his food. And it was because my rule was we all get to go through life, some of us get to go through life with no eyes, no legs, one lung, you know, uh, and some of us get to go through life mentally handicapped, and life does not make any reservations about that, you see. So again, like the fat little birds, life says to us, if you're on the bottom, you can find the food if you pay attention. And if some of that stuff you pick up is not helpful, doesn't benefit you, you can always spit it back, if you will. But don't be so concerned about being on the bottom. There's a lot to discover there. He goes on to say, where am I? Here we go. He goes on to write, when, when feeling burdened, watch small birds to see how they begin to fly. When feeling finished, 
watch newborn animals open their wet little eyes and imitate their innocence. Once giving full attention, you will come back, maybe one drop at a time, but you will come back into the tide of living because we are designed to come back. We are designed to find the food and to rise up and be alive even in the worst conditions. And if you've been watching a lot of the History Channel and documentaries as such, some of the poorest cultures in the world are also the happiest ones. Explain that. Living in a culture that says you gotta have this to be happy. No you don't. No you don't. All you need is a good meal. That's all you need. It's a good meal. It's all you need. She tastes the food and pays close attention to every sensation as she eats, savoring the food slowly. Then after all of that, it goes on to say, she then practices gratitude for every moment, every person, everything she's given. She's filled with happiness by every little thing in this hour. And like the power of intention, synonymous, the power of gratitude, is a miraculous and most skillful way to live your life. It is something that, again, you find in all of the teachings. Praise Him in the morning, praise Him in the noontime, praise Him when the sun goes down. When I wake up in the morning, my first words is, thank you, just, just to wake up. When I go to sleep at night, my last words is, thank you. And I have a litany of things that I do not take for granted and people that I do not take for granted, that I am grateful for and express, whether anybody's listening or not. I'm listening. And it reminds me of how wealthy I am, even though my bank account is zero, every, at the end of every month, if you will. Any questions? What's your name? My name's Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi. Um, so you were talking before about like saying yes and knowing when to say no and to mean it and when to say yes. I think sometimes in my life I say yes too much and it can get me into trouble. Okay. So I, I think, is it also important to know when to say yes to saying no? Knowing to say yes isn't a choice. When it's a choice, then that's where the suffering really comes from. When I choose to say yes as opposed to no or vice versa, I'm making a choice. And I talk a lot about this in my writings and I will be talking more about it in the days ahead of these evenings and other forums. Choice is not the, the gift. The fact that we have all these choices we can choose from is not the gift. The real gift is freedom from choice. When you live your life freedom from, free of having to make a choice, that's the gift. That's where the real power lies. Now, where does that come from? It comes from, again, the principle of identity. It comes from my yes has to do with knowing who I am and why I'm here. So, again, if my yes is not in harmony with or alignment with my intention, which is to live my life as a benefit for others, 
and to have that benefit returned to me so that I can continue to benefit others. When my yes is in alignment with that, I can only be fulfilled. I can only be content. But when my yes is about, oh, I don't want to hurt her feelings, or, oh, if I say no, they ain't going to like me, that's the ego delusion, and that's what you're talking about. That's what, see, that's another thing that's another thing we need to get skillful at. We need to tell the truth about what's really causing our suffering. And our suffering is, again, caused when our yes or our no is obligatory, okay? And our sense of obligation is our stuff. It's all part of the story we tell ourselves, you see? So what, what, one of the things, Rumi, you know who Rumi is, right? Okay, Rumi once wrote, you know, if you want to be a good teacher, you need at least 10,000 people who don't like you, okay? Chungnam Trungpa Rinpoche says the role of the teacher is to insult you, okay? Now, what are they both talking about? They're talking about an ancient saying that comes out of Islam. A king's heart trembles before the man or woman who wants nothing. Or a more modern version of that, how do you stop someone who's not afraid to die? You know saying? How do you how, how do you stop someone who doesn't need your approval, your agreement, your your vote? You see? Because that that yes no choice world, that locks us into the political world and we hate that world, rightfully so. Because that's all about, again, getting something from you that I feel I need and really has nothing to do with you. Just you benefit me right now if you give me your vote, okay? After I'm elected, see, see where that takes you. you know so the yes I'm talking about, Abraham knew one thing, the will of, the, the will of God, if you will. Jesus knew one thing, the will of the Father. Buddha knew one thing, the Buddha Dharma, okay? What he saw directly and experienced directly. And they all lived their lives, like so many others like them, out of that. They made their choices, their decisions out of that. Not some kind of random, uh, let's see how I feel tomorrow. How I feel tomorrow has nothing to do with anything, okay? Any more than your vote has anything to do with anything. And you should know my vote for you the same. Because you and I are heading to the same place, the cemetery. So if I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy, I'll see you there. You see? And vice versa. So we need to tell the truth. Our suffering is not because we give our yes too often. Our suffering is because why we give our yes. What is that really about? And again, from the Buddhist teaching, the yes that is given out of right intention is the yes that not only benefits the individual, but benefits the world, benefits others. Okay? Uh, you know, the trees that drop their seeds, living in the pine lands where, where the monastery is, I often tell this wonderful story when I was a kid fighting as a volunteer fireman, a big fire that happened in Wharton State Park. At one time, during, we were there for like days, and at night I thought I heard it raining, and an old fireman said, it's not the rain, and later explained to me, that the pine trees in the pine lands naturally drop their seeds out of the cones when a fire approaches. And they do that, if you will, and again, we're talking from a story here, 
you come back 10 years later with that parched forest and you got new pine trees. They do that naturally. They don't sit around thinking, oh, I'm not gonna benefit these people in 10 years from now. Danger, their own death, their own demise, they drop the seeds. It's a natural response. Our yes, the yes of Abraham, the yes of Jesus, the yes of the Buddha, the yes of anybody who really is spiritual is like that. It's not like where I think about, oh, let's see, if I say yes to God, then I'm gonna to get to heaven. No, it's not like that, you see? So when we stop saying yes, just to make other people happy, or just to get something for ourselves, we'll discover a yes that created all of this. Okay? Thank you. And you'll discover that force of nature you really are. See, we, we, we have to stop looking for a truth to fit this unrealistic reality, this culture of ours. And we have to tell the truth. This is where the suffering is. It's not over here. You know, it's not over here. It's here. It's in this, it's in this cultural lifestyle of ours that's about saying yes to get something. You see? I can't tell you the number of times and years I've said yes in the face of getting nothing. And that's made all the difference. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You get to say a lot of yeses as a parent that if you thought about it would be no. <laughs> or if you thought you'd get something immediately in return, then you're going to do it for that reason, you would just run away. Which you need to know I felt like doing today. I don't know why, but she was real off today. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way they are. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you, Peter. She then practices gratitude for every moment, for every person, everything she's given, even the stuff that was sour on her palate, even the aromas that stunk. You know what happens when you receive everything in your life with equanimity? You learn that there can be no light without dark. And now your fear of the dark drops away. And it becomes your friend. We'll talk about that either tonight or next month, how we need to embrace the enemy. Again, that's another teaching. Love your enemy. Bless them who curse you. Pray for them who despise and persecute you. Wasn't some nice ideal. It was a wise skillfulness. Because when you embrace the thing you fear the most, it makes you powerful. It opens up an awareness of your potential to meet any circumstance and any situation and not be destroyed by it or lessened by it. Because it's all about who you choose to be, not who or what that says you need to become. Finally, she changes people's lives. She lives her life again to be a benefit in other people's lives. She uses what's left of the dwindling hour to learn more. And if spirituality is anything, it's that. The late, great Suzuki Roshi, one of the greatest Japanese Zen masters who ever lived, coined a phrase 
that is heard in Zen centers all around the world. In the beginner's mind, he said, there are always many possibilities. In the expert's mind, he said, there are few. And with that, he said, practice is difficult for you, not because practice is difficult, but because you haven't mastered maintaining the beginner's mind. And what is the beginner's mind? Even if I'm doing this thing for the hundredth time, there's a lesson here that I still haven't seen. The beginner is always learning, always learning. And again, uh, when we look at this from a physics point of view and a biological point of view and a medical point of view, whichever one you want to choose, learning is growing. And when you stop learning, you stop growing. And when you stop growing, you die. So, she is always learning by the fact that even in the less, even when her time's almost running out, she's using that time to learn. She's using that time to heal people who are struggling. Even when you are in your worst, and I have learned this by number of people in my lifetime, even when you are in your worst and you feel that you have nothing to offer, that feeling of nothingness could be the greatest gift you have to offer another. Even in our worst times, the Bodhisattva vow is to be a benefit to others. Even when I am so weak, so downtrodden, going through a rough time. And again, from a therapist's point of view, from a psychological point of view, one of the best things I can do for myself when I am in that position is to help someone else in that position. Is to extend myself outward, not inward. In whatever way I can. It is said that Picasso drew his best in the worst rejections of his love life. That what he did was he went to the studio and draw, drew something. You know, who was it? Who uh, Van Gogh? Van, one of his most famous paintings was one that came out of a tragedy, a personal tragedy. To make things to delight the other amazing people in this world, and in the end, this summarizes what this is really all about. She became the gift for others. She became the gift for others. She became the benefit for others. And this is what we mean in Zen when we say to live your life as a benefit for others. Make your life a benefit for others. So the ancient Zen masters used to say, prepare the supreme meal. That is what practice is. Prepare the supreme meal. What is the supreme meal? Your life. Your life. And that's what real spiritual practice, real spirituality is about. Preparing my life, preparing my supreme meal to offer the world as a benefit for the world. If nothing else, you know what disappears? Boredom. <laughs> so if you, got, if you need any reason, you still haven't found one, you won't be bored. You won't be born. You'd be too busy to be bored. You see? 
Any questions? So intention is everything. Right intention is the only thing. Whenever your life feels out of kilter, you need to stop and look at your intention. Whatever it may be that you are doing, doesn't matter what it is you're doing. Doesn't have to be something spiritual looking. Even though, again, in Zen, everything is spiritual, and spiritual is everything. But nonetheless, it doesn't have to look spiritual. It could be getting, going out for a date tonight. In fact, if you apply what I've talked about tonight, and if you're into that, and you want to meet somebody new, try it. Try to take her out or him out to benefit them. See what happens. Pay attention to their story. Not so much telling them your story. See what happens. Someone once told me that all you need to do with a woman is pay attention. And they'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> it's all you need to do. Because men don't pay attention. You know what I'm Just pay attention. Make their story more important than yours. And watch what happens. Right intention is the only thing. And in, in, again, in Zen, in, in Buddhism, there is only one intention. That's right. May my thoughts, my words, and my actions benefit others. May the benefit my thoughts, words, and actions create return to benefit me, so that I, in turn, may continue to benefit others. And back to relationship as an example. Find any relationship, and I've been there, that has either ceased, broken up in divorce, or some other tragic way, and you will find one or both parties stopped considering living in that relationship as a benefit to the other, and became, if you were obsessed with what's in it for me. And you can find that example in anything. You can find it again in the corporate world. When we talk about you know, Zen in the workplace, we talk about how to bring this principle to the workplace as a benefit to the business. Most people find themselves working for companies that go under because someone in the company, from either the top to the workers, stopped working to benefit the company. You see? And it all became about what it benefited them. And we began to see this change in this country, in the corporation, corporate life in this country, when we became more interested in our shareholders than in the product that we had to offer as a benefit to others. So. Any questions? And we'll take that break for a few moments. I have a friend who has called into question whom he should love. This opened a field of complexities, and life quickly became an endless consideration of possibilities, choices, and allegiances. But beneath the endless inventories, his soul was calling out from way inside. And through his pain, my friend kept hearing this far-off cry surface at the oddest times. Soon, he realized 
this cry was indeed much deeper than who. His very soul was begging to experience. This seemed more serious, more urgent, more filled with terror than a choice between one woman or another. As he began to struggle with facing himself, my friend began to realize that all the decisions to be made about who and where and when were really heartfelt distractions from a much deeper issue. Underneath all the painful ambiguities and assessments, his very soul was drowning, sinking out of reach of the feel of life. Once hearing the deeper cry within himself, his choice became extremely basic and very straightforward. How do I regain my wonder at being alive? What must I do to keep my heart from sinking? Time and again, we are shown by the quiet courage of others that if we can let the deeper cry through, the next step to health will come, will come plainly into view. So one of the things that my sharing and his sharing, Peter's sharing with me earlier before the break brings up for me is once again, not only the matter of distraction, but understanding fully what we are being distracted from and why it is so urgent and imperative that we get a grip on, again, the choices we are making, the goals we are making, and the pursuits that take up so much of our vital energy, take up so much of our life, and rob us so much as in, again, the other, the, this story by Mark Nepo about his friend of the actual experience of life, the actual feeling of life, that experience of being alive rather than having life in us that occasionally isn't working well and we need to get that fixed. So let's go meditate, pray, see a doctor, go on vacation, and so forth which always costs us money, which only lasts temporarily, and then we're back again in the, in the pursuit of happiness. So when we talk about our yes as a function of something other than that conditioned self that is always pursuing some kind of gratification, whether it is my approval, my acceptance, whether it is, again, my vote or someone else's vote, whatever that may be for us, whether it is some ideal, including those ideals to live holier or better or more compassionate and so forth, these two are looked at or viewed from the Buddhist uh, perspective as lofty ideals that can also distract us because, again, we want to fully experience life, and in order to fully experience my light, I need to be willing to visit the dark side, and I need to be willing to experience the dark side. I need to face it that he is all our fathers, the same, <laughs> if you will. I need to embrace that side of me as well. So to live in equanimity is the same thing as my yes 
being a function of a much deeper and more profound, if you will, purpose or conviction for my life. And again, from the Buddhist perspective or the Buddhist teaching, when we take right intention, which is the intention to live my life as everything else in nature lives its life, and that is as a benefit for others, and in turn, living as a benefit, that benefit benefits me as well. To live my life that way is to live from, again, integrity. It's to live from a singular purpose, a singular meaning, which when we live singularly and with integrity, literally, not metaphorically, but literally will define for us not only the and not only what will happen in the end, not only the results, but the possibilities, the potential. So, for example, again, from the enlightened or the Buddha Dharma, the enlightened point of view of life and the meaning of life, when we take that as a context for living, that which is the cry within each of us. So, as you know, Nepo's friend, when he used this cry, he stops living his life from a place of choosing who will make him the most happy, you see. But from asking the quintessential question, what really is hungry here? What really is unhappy here? And how can I best and more skillfully respond to that? Realizing that again, it's not a person, it's not a place, it's not a thing. It has everything to do with, again, how I perceive myself and how much of my lifestyle and the things in my life are distracting me from that voice, from that purpose, from that, if you will, context, which is the universal context for all living things. So ultimately, the first step has to be a willingness on the part of the individual to ask that question, what is the meaning of my life? And we've answered that. And then to go on by asking the question, what do I need to be doing to realign my lifestyle or the way I do it with that intention, with that purpose? And much of the work, and work it is, involves a willingness on my part to always be honest, to thine own self be true, Shakespeare said. And he went on to say, everything else, all of the honesty and openness and love and the good relational stuff we seek in the world will follow, he said, by being true to yourself, by being honest with yourself. And most people enter into a spiritual practice and never see it through because as Jack Nicholson Buddha said, they can't handle the truth, you're saying. So you need to be able to handle the truth. And one of the ways to prepare yourself with the truth is to realize that in spirituality, in spiritual work, the truth is always inconvenient. So we need to stop looking for spirituality to be convenient. And we need to stop making our choice to invest ourselves into it according to the convenience. That's the way of the world. And as one teacher from another uh, tradition said, we are here to be in the world, but not of it. To be in the world, but not of it. 
And if there's any evidence as to why we should not want to be of it, we're seeing it more and more every day. It's just, it's just one big mess. And I don't know about you, I got enough mess to clean up of my own. So to be in the world and not of it is to be in the world, again, as the Buddha said, with wisdom, with honesty, with compassion, with loving kindness towards others and towards yourself towards others and towards yourself. Or as an old friend of mine once said, you need to navigate the ship of life with one hand for the ship and one hand for yourself. But understanding that the moment this hand becomes more important than this hand's work, the ship will go down. Or when this hand's work becomes more important than this hand's work, you get tossed in the ocean and drown. So it must be a benefit for all the many beings, and by all the many beings, I mean myself as well. But again, whether it be in matters of love, whether it be in matters of you know, uh, the corporate world, business, whether it be in matters of governing, whatever the matter may be, when I suddenly choose to step out of that balance, and act more this way or that way, there will be suffering. And usually I do that without realizing it. And usually I do that because I've been distracted. Because something has distracted me from that singular purpose. And it can be something so, uh, so conditional for us. You know, as a parent, one of the things that I work on every day with my daughter is to not bring the stuff that I recognize, you know, my parents who love me and who are wonderful people uh, brought to their parenting me that wasn't necessarily too good for me, you see. So that is always there because that becomes for all of us that ingrained habitual behavior becomes cellular somewhere in the course of our lives. So again, I need an intention for life that has to do with nurturing and cultivating the good things of life, the goodness of life, the wholeness of life. I need that intention as the place I launch from and the place I land back or return to. When we talk about taking refuge in Buddhism from suffering in the world, again we talk about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We talk about everything we've been talking about tonight and last month, and I've been talking about for nearly 40 years. We talk about a conducive, if you will, environment, way of life that is conducive for cultivating and nurturing what we all ultimately are hungry for. And what we are hungry for is that experience, that experience of being alive. And when we look at the question of, you know, Mark Nepo's friend's question of, what can I do to, you know, cultivate that experience more often in my life? Uh, I think everyone in this room has to agree that the one constant, the one constant has to do with love. That is why I say that the matters or the problems of the world, as well as the individual's problems, is a matter of the heart and nothing else. And if we don't cultivate 
the ground for the heart to grow and to open and to express itself more often in our daily living, nothing will change. That the suffering we see individually and globally is not an economic problem, it's not a political problem, it's, it's not even a religious problem. It's a personal problem whereby each individual is the missing link and each individual needs to take responsibility for being that imperative and most necessary link to healing the world and, if you will, saving it from total uh, annihilation by the very people who live on it, if you will. So, we begin with this singular purpose. Now, if I am sincere to that, you know, I often tell people who have been on this path with me for the past 40 years, take care of the Dharma and the Dharma will take care of you. Take care of the Dharma and the Dharma will take care of us. So again, as the example I used earlier in my years of inquiry with people with great uh, bank accounts, if you will, almost every one of them that I came to really respect and admire said the same thing. They didn't, they didn't start out to make money. They started out with a passion which they believed could help the world, could make a difference in the world, could change the world. And that's whether they were creating some kind of um, computer program or application for a computer program or some kind of, I was reading up on uh, the guy who actually designed and built the building at Pine Wynn uh, was a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Wells, who was, who was he died in 2009. He actually designed that building and built it. And it is one of eight of the first structures back in the 70s, both in this country and in the world, that was, e was designed to be eco-friendly, was designed to be earth-friendly, if you will. And again, guys like that, they start out with you know, wanting to take care of life, wanting to contribute, to give something back. And you know, the money follows, as they all said to me. The same is true about any endeavor. If your intention in spiritual practice is to live that intention we've talked about, and you take care of that intention, or as I say, you take care of business, if you will, everything else will flow from that eventually. And one of the things that you need to remember that in those times, and I have been there, one of, uh, as recent as three hours ago, in those times when you think it's, the return isn't coming quick enough, if you will, you've, you've been distracted. You've been distracted. And that's where, again, the practice of mindfulness becomes a skillful tool. Whenever I fear the future, whenever I'm worried about tomorrow, whenever I'm worried about whether this one likes me or that one likes me, whatever it is for you, whatever that reoccurring worryment is for you shows up. Listen to that message, and that message is you're off-center, you're off-purpose. That's what the suffering is about. It's very much like the Buddha's teaching on suffering itself. He says most of us, for example, tend to think we are suffering at this moment because we lack something or some person. And so the next thing we do is we crave for that, we desire that. 
And the more we crave, the more we desire, you know, and the more we are convinced that when I get that, I will be happy. It seems like the space between now and that is long and suffering, if you will. And then something causes us to get it. And we have this experience of relief. And we turn to Sajaka Roshi and say, see, it is it. You know. And I say to you, that's not the relief. That's not what caused the relief. What caused the relief, the Buddha says, is you've stopped craving. You've stopped desiring. You see, you're back in the moment. You're back here. And how can I prove that? Take that from you, and you're craving again. And the suffering shows up again. Or I don't even have to take it from you, because I guarantee you, in about a month, it'll be something else. It'll be someone else you see, or some other place, or some other desire. So when we find ourselves not really feeling alive, the message is we're distracted. And as much as sometimes even the distraction can feel temporarily, okay, well, I'll just take a break here, if you will, it can also become for us, and again, in, in the world of psychology, is called depression. It eventually becomes for us an obsession that leads to depression, because we find ourselves now stuck in that distraction. And the work is to get back in alignment. And in Zen, getting back in alignment is the emergency stage. What we want you to learn, what we want you to practice, is regular maintenance. We want you to practice, you know, Zen spirituality is proactive. It's not the stuff that most of us has come in our culture to learn about such things as meditation and yoga. It's not the stuff we do after we feel bad. It's the stuff we do every day, not because it gets us anything, but because it's part of who we are and part of that intention. I want to be healthier and happier so that I can take care of my daughter. And when my daughter is happy, I'm happy, you see. It's like that. I want to be healthier and happier. I mean, the first thing that happened to me every time I landed in the hospital over the past four years with either a heart attack or pneumonia was, what, what about the monastery? What about my students? And there's a wonderful story about Suzuki Roshi when he had uh, gotten cancer and was and was at the end of his life dying from it. You know, he's up at Tassajara, which is uh, one of the retreat centers for the San Francisco Zen Center, and he's out in 102 degree uh, weather moving rocks, which he loved to do with his students all the time. And so his wife yells out at him and says, what, what are you thinking? And he yells back at her, I'm thinking about the Dharma and my students. That's what I'm thinking, you see and went back to moving rocks. And it was only two weeks later that he died from the horrible cancer uh, that he had, and so forth. So even in our worst times and worst circumstances, it is our purpose for life, it is our passion for life that can give us at least the experience of being alive all the way up to that moment we die. And it doesn't matter anyway because it's all over. What matters is not how long you live. What matters is how well you live in whatever time you do live. Because t 
time drops away when you live like that. It drops away. And if you don't know that, you've not been around children enough. I, try, I had this conversation with Katie last night, trying to help her understand tomorrow. So I said to her, let's get some rest because we'll do it tomorrow. You know what she asked me? What's tomorrow? Try to figure the answer to that question. <laughs> so I tried it and she said, I still don't know what tomorrow is. <laughs> so I said, well, you'll figure it out sometime down the road. You don't need to know it just in four years and so forth. It's an illusion anyway, I said to her. <laughs> so the next question, what's an illusion? <laughs> I said, well, you know that stuff that happens when you tell me you dreamed? Well, you're dreaming now. I am? <laughs> But fortunately, she, she, she uh, revived her position in the whole conversation by telling me she wanted to be a monk like me. So, she got that vote. <laughs> Any questions? Hi. Hi, my name is Ann. Hi, Ann. Um, my dilemma in life is about craving. And tomorrow, if I'm being, if I'm following my true passion, and that involves meeting certain goals, I, I'm very much conflicted with. Okay, I have to do this, this, this to get to that point. Is that, you know, craving or planning? sharing this with you because sometimes I think my my goals and craving really mess me up um, and I, I just I don't know you know with the understanding that I'm trying to follow my passion okay my truth um, yeah I got it okay. I got it there's several things going on there that you need to be aware of. Aware of. You know, when, when you ask that question, there's the immediate that you recognize, and my job is to see you to recognize the other pieces. So the first piece that I heard immediately you need to stop doing is to stop referring to it as your dilemma. Okay? It's not your dilemma. Whenever we set up good against bad, no matter how good good is, there will be suffering or vice versa. So the stuff you're calling your dilemma is part of the same package. It's part of the same passion. It comes with a passion, okay? If you think that nearly 40 years ago when I decided to commit myself to this, I figured, oh, it's gonna be a wonderful life. Well, you don't know anything about me or this life, okay? So. You need to start referring to it as dilemma because part of that eightfold prescription that I referred to tonight, we'll talk more about, has to do with right speech. Okay? So the words we use to describe our suffering is very important. Alright? So in Zen, the suffering is not oppositional. It's not oppositional. It's the teacher. The difficulties of the teacher. So that's the first thing. You need to change your view of your suffering from dilemma or oppositional to part of what's going to get you 
to your goal or objective. There's, second, there's nothing inappropriate about goals and objectives, having them. But most people who say, I have these goals, I have these objectives, what they don't realize is that the truth is their goals and objectives have them. Okay? So we go back to Mark Nepo's first story where he says we need to become more like water. Okay? Even in the pursuit of our goals and objectives. It may take a lifetime, and again I speak from experience, it may take a lifetime to achieve those goals and objectives. Doesn't, I don't know if, they, if, if it will or not. I have, I have, I'm not a magician or a fortune teller, okay? But if you're, if you're having a struggle, if, if those goals and objectives are temporarily, you know, have you and have you locked from experiencing life right now, you need to take a look at how you're holding them, all right? So, for example, whatever the goal may be, You've already, you already have it. It's already within you. It's not down the road when this happens. And that's another point of view that has to change. So you need to maybe move from doing to get, which is, again, our culture. Our culture is all about if you do it hard enough, long enough, you'll get it. Bullshit. Okay? The guys and women who really get it will tell you, get it out of their vision. They're visionaries. There's something else going on with them. Certainly, hard work may be required. Long hours may be required. But it's not like, oh, i got to work hard to get this, but I'm going to get there. It's not like that for them. Because they don't separate the journey from the destination. And when you, when you speak of it as dilemma, the craving, the distraction, that's all part of it. I get distracted every day. I crave every day, and Elizabeth brought me some chocolate tonight, okay? I crave every day, I get distracted every day. That's not the point. The point is to be aware when you are distracted, and to be aware when your craving is causing suffering, and then come back to center. So in those moments, you may want to notice the suffering and, and take a break, get off the ride for a moment. Be easier in yourself. Look at what you're doing in here that is amplifying the suffering. And change that. Change that. Life is suffering, the Buddha said. That's the first noble truth. He said life is suffering. But he said it kind of like this. Life is suffering. Get over it. Okay? It doesn't mean... You, you will be diminished by it, or you need to fail by it, or you need to work to overcome it. No, it doesn't mean that. It said life is suffering. That's what it is, okay? Now, how do you live, plan, set up goals and objectives in that reality? And one of the things he might say to you is, there's plenty of suffering to be found and you don't need to be amplifying it or making more of it for yourself. So it's all about, again, skillfulness. So have your goals, have your objectives, just make sure they don't have you at any time, which is probably what's going on in those moments of desperation, okay? And in those moments, 
where you're craving and desiring because you want it now or whatever is going on for you. In those moments, all that's necessary is to notice that, take a breath, take a break, lighten up, have a martini <laughs> or whatever it is, go for a jog, give me a call, okay, whatever. Talk to Peter, okay, <laughs> all right? Is that helpful? Anyone else? Hi. Permission to speak? No, I don't know. I was thinking during the break that, uh, and I spoke with this young lady over here. This uh, one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I know what to prepare for. Go ahead. <laughs> I was saying that, uh, you know, from listening to what you've been speaking about tonight, you know, to say yes passion, um, to the intent, the rightful intent. Um, sometimes I feel there's the blockage there, and it's the fear blockage mm -hmm. that creates the doubt. <coughs> so it's the fear and the doubt kind of cycle that is the blockage. The spirituality for me as the essence of the all that's all in being. I practice that in spirituality of imperfection. Imperfection because I want to be teachable. I want to learn more. And I really want to hear. But not only hear, to do. So those are some of the things that were cooking around in my head little brain. Okay. So what do you do with the fear that think, shows up? What I do think you? now at the age that I have become, perhaps it's a, and they say uh, age is, uh, and wisdom comes with age, um, what do I have to fear? So what? Yeah, it's kind of like what I always say, you're going to die. That's exactly. And that's a win-win situation. Well, I know that. And, and you know, um, I love what Thich Nhat Hanh has to say. In each breath, there's a new life. I don't know that the next breath is going to come. I don't know that there's going to be any more life. But it certainly, uh, there were a lot more um, blockages and fears and doubts throughout the life. But I feel somewhat through the spirituality that has uh, grown in my life somewhat and continues to keep growing through uh, listening to talks in the Dharma. Um, that's a liberate, liberation. And that fear is diminishing. So what? And it's before, you know, what will people think? So what? Know, will this be a total failure? So, mm -hmm. yeah. know, so, so that's uh, pretty much how uh, things been going for me. But uh, I, I guess I'm hearing that little voice uh, um, of wisdom coming from somewhere, not me, from some spiritual, you know, well that is rolling up mm. and helping to become somewhat more liberated. I think the core of it is the fear and the doubt. 
blockage. And I recognize that in my awareness when I get off-center or off. The fear and the doubt, again from the Buddha Dharma view, is not the blockage. It's how we hold the fear and the doubt. We are always the cause and the solution at the same time. So as I said to Peter earlier, and as I just said to Anne, when the fear and doubt show up, we're not to see them as oppositional, but as part of the whole package. They're like the cousins, if you will. They're part of the whole package. We don't see our cousins often, but when we do, we're, they're really present in our life. And so when fear and doubt show up, they're not the blockage. There's not, they're not what's really keeping us. And that's how we can start to gain some kind of real control in those moments of fear. What's keeping us, you, you touched upon whether you realized it or not, is the story we hold about the fear and doubt. So again, if I'm a person whose other people's opinions of me matter, that's what's holding me. That's what's keeping me stuck. So if I have a story that says, I am because you like me, okay, I am valuable because he thinks I'm a Zen master or something like that, then my ability and my, the, any possibility for me is completely dependent, obviously, upon your approval. And that's a story that I choose to tell myself. But fear and doubt is in everything. It's in everything, you know. It's it's in birth, it's in death, it's in life, and they're just the they're just the cousins, if you will. So we're not to you know like Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and by what by that he meant the fear of fear, to be afraid of it. We shouldn't be afraid of fear. First of all, it's necessary. It's a very natural primordial part of this biological component. We also are. We're not just spiritual beings, we're also physical beings. You know, we exist in this, and this component's designed to respond fearfully in certain occasions. So fear's our buddy, if you will. So what's happening in those moments when it feels like our fear of tomorrow or our doubt of our ability to face it, it's not the fear and doubt itself. And again, we don't even experience fear in those moments. We think, you know, we say, well, I'm afraid, but that's not what we're really experiencing. Fear is not so fearful without the story, okay? The example I often use is being raised by a Sicilian and a German, Hitler and Mussolini. You know, my mother said she loved me by saying, get home now, I'll rip your face off, okay? Now, the story I told myself from where I was to the time it took me to get home was much more horrific than what happened when I got home. So it's the story that is really like the craving that is really causing the suffering in those moments. That's why the Buddhist teaching is in those fearful moments the only possibility for liberation is to do exactly what you're fearful of doing. That's the only possibility. The only possibility. You know, when Jesus is confronted by his students to pass Jerusalem, again, it wasn't some nice part of the story where he says, absolutely not. I'm destined for Jerusalem, and I know it's coming, and what have you. That was for his benefit that he was saying that. Because if he didn't, nothing else would have followed. 
So if we, if we can learn to have the fear, and I have it showing up every day of my life, if we can learn to have the fear and still remain the course, that's where the real liberation comes in. That's where it really comes in. And we just notice, ah, oh, fearful, hmm, yeah, scared to death. You know? And the only thing that is kind of like, I, you know, again, when we moved to Jersey, we always had a pool. And every year it was like, summer's coming, we're going swimming. And the first day of summer, and we're out to the pool, and we ran out the back kitchen door to the pool, and what do we do? We stop and put our foot in first. You see? The real fun never came until you jumped in of the very thing you were afraid of diving into. Think about it. But dying is easy. It's the story that kills us. <laughs> okay, may I speak? Is the road to hell paved with good intention? The road to hell? It's paved with good intention. No, I think we go to hell whether we have good intention or not. And I think we must. Psalm 23 is my most favorite uh, koan. I think we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? So I think that, again, when, when, what the saying says to me, and I thought about that and the other one that's synonymous with it, the plans of mice and men, something like that. Again, there's all kinds of intentions, but I think the right intention is not designed to avoid hell, but to get us through that valley, you know, and recognize that, again, the only thing we have to fear is the fear of fear itself. Okay? Good to see you. Yeah, I was thinking about you this week. You must have heard me. I did. Like, where is that over? Where's Orat? <laughs> Any other questions? I'm Hi. afraid to ask this question. Why? I'm not that <laughs> scary, am I? <laughs> My name is Carol. Hi, Carol. Um, the, uh, the fear is uh, making a decision, and I want to make the right decision for myself, is between how I feel and what I think, between my heart and my head. And is it good for me, or is it good for the other person, for example? So to make a decision, I guess, to follow my heart, because I think that maybe that's the wrong way to go. I should be following my head. Well, you're talking to the wrong person about following your head, because my instruction to all my students is to stay out of your head. Okay? <laughs> the head's where the story is. Okay? I know you're just talking And we about like that. to think that that's where wisdom is, but it isn't. The wisdom's in the heart. The Japanese call it kokoro which means the heart within, okay? And that's where the real knowledge and the real wisdom of life exists. You talk to any creative person, you talk to the people who wrote those stories of the heart, and they didn't get it in here, they got it in here, it came from here. So, two things. One, uh, always remember that in matters of the heart, there's no way around it, there will be suffering, okay? All right, so it's kind of like, again, life is suffering, get over it. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be disappointment and despair, and then there's going to be joy and happiness and all of that. That's, that comes with the whole package, with the whole package. And also always remember what, uh, uh, I forget, the, I always forget the philosopher's name, but he wrote, the two greatest things of the 20th century offered to us was gunpowder and romantic love. Okay? <laughs> All right? 
So uh, always remember that. So in matters of the heart, I always follow the heart no matter the risk. No matter the risk. When my mind says you're a fool, my heart says I already am sitting here wondering what to do. <laughs> you know? I've been told that, you know, about the heart. Well, I listen. This, there's, I've created this doubt. But when are you going to listen? <laughs> the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. So maybe it's time to stop asking the question and go with the answer. And like I always say, you might die. It's a win-win situation. Because with every failure, with every door closed, another one opens. And if you need more sayings, here's another good one I found on the internet the other day. Sometimes stuff has to be moved out of the way for better stuff to show up. But you're going to die anyway, so. <laughs> Get that resolved and you'll know what to do. Okay? Thank you. Any other questions? Two more questions and then that's it. One more question and that's it. So we will continue this discussion next month as we continue to take a look at the principle of identity, which is the principle of the universe, the principle of everything that exists. But before you leave, I've been told I need to make a couple announcements, and then I have one something personal to say to you before you leave also. So I'll get the announcements out of the way. The one is Tuesday night meditation here at uh, Yoga for Living that was originally scheduled for 6 to 7. It's now happening at 7.30 to 8.30. It's been moved, is that back or up? Back, we moved back to 7.30 to 8.30 with the hope that all of you inconvenient by six and seven will find it more convenient. I'll be here anyway, and so forth. So that's 6.30 to 7.30 to 8.30. 7.30 to 8.30. Uh, the other thing is, if you aren't following me on a blog, and if you haven't read my book, and you're not reading the, uh, letters, the newsletters each month, if you read Natural Awakenings, they've asked me to submit a regular editorial that began last month. So there'll be a, a regular editorial by me in Natural Awakenings every month. And I think the magazine's free. So uh, you get all the answers to life for free. <laughs> it's kind of like tonight, isn't it? <laughs> so forth. So uh, in Natural Awakenings each month um, is uh, writing and anything else? Oh, yes. August 9th, we are having a party at Pinewind. And you're all invited to come. From 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., rain date the following Saturday, August 16th. Uh, there's information on a flyer out there. There'll be information in Natural Awakenings. There's information on our website being set up. And it's from 1 to 5. There will be great food, festivities, musical entertainment. Um, bring the kids. We're going to have uh, arts and crafts and scavenger hunts and maybe even a magician uh, for the event, uh, for the kids. So we want you to bring the whole family. Come and find out about us because once you're there, you're not going to want to leave. Pets and too? And we need you to do that. Pardon me? Pets too? Pets too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mine will be there. Okay. So bring your pets. Bring the bird. Okay. I miss the bird. I haven't seen the bird in a long time. Okay? Bring the bird. So that's August 9th at uh, Pinewind in Chemung, New Jersey. And if you've not been there, you'll get to at least see Malcolm Wells' unbelievable uh, construction. Is that it? That's all I can think of, actually. Stay seated.
So please listen. In the ancient tradition of Zen monks throughout the world since ancient times, I stand before you with palm against palm and ask you to consider to help us at Pine Wind. The solvency of our work depends on the generosity of its members and guests. And so I, with humble heart, bow before you and ask you to please consider a donation to the monastery in Shemong. We need to raise at least another thousand dollars a month to keep it going in the days ahead. Membership brings much benefits. Go to our site and look at it. And uh, again, if you will help us, you will find many blessings returned to you. And most of all, you will find my heart always. It always is, but even more. So as a monk, I ask you, please help us at Pinewind. Send in your donations. Become a member, more importantly, and join us in our effort to spreading this word and this information. And again, as always, it's been a privilege to be with you tonight. Good night.